It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Some breaking news from the media world, and we'll just begin the podcast with this. Story number one, Jeff Zucker is stepping down as the president of CNN. Now, even if you don't care all that much about the ins and outs of the corporate suite at the cable networks, uh, Zucker is a really significant figure, and he absolutely transformed CNN, but at a very high cost. The things that have gone on at CNN in the last four years, and I'm not a uh, knee-jerk CNN basher. I think the network has a lot of good reporters. I think the network has some talented hosts and anchors. Uh, I have friends at CNN. But the things that have gone on under Zucker at CNN are things that years ago would have been firing offenses at the old CNN. Uh, let me just talk a little bit about Zucker. I mean, I've known Zucker for such a long time. Uh, when he was 25 years old, he was the wonderkind uh, executive producer of the Today Show. Uh, Katie Couric and was it Brian Gumble at that time? Um, in any event, he and Katie formed this sort of lifelong uh, partnership. Uh, they, he later worked with her uh, when uh, she did her syndicated daytime show. Uh, and then he rose through the ranks to become not just the president of NBC News, but the president of the entire NBC network. Uh, and then after leaving that job, uh, you know, CNN kept calling. It was uh, a little over seven years ago uh, that Zucker took over CNN. Now, he's not leaving until the end of the year. He's leaving when his contract is up. Uh, and there's a backstory there, which is CNN is now owned by AT&T. AT&T, the division of AT&T is Warner Media. Uh, because CNN has been owned over the years, you know, obviously started by Ted Turner back in the day. And, uh, and then it was, you know, uh, AOL, Time Warner and all that. But AT&T is the current owner. And the uh, current chief at uh, Warner Media is Jason Kalar. And Jason Kalar has clashed with Jeff Zucker. I mean, Jeff, who's a brilliant TV guy, there's no question about it, um, is a micromanager. And he's the kind of guy who like calls the control room at midnight to say, no, 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 don't break away from this and ask this question and that sort of thing. Uh, and Kalar perhaps thought Zucker had too much power and he stripped Jeff Zucker of some of his duties overseeing the entire public relations apparatus at CNN as well as the human resources division. So you could tell the tensions were brewing. There was some question about whether AT&T would want to renew Zucker's contract or whether Zucker uh, would want to... Um, continue there. And now he's made the decision. He told uh, his staff on a conference call today, this was uh, first reported by the New York Times, I cannot imagine not being here right now. I'm going to stay and finish my current contract, which as I said, will keep me here to the end of this year. At that point, I do expect to move on. Now, it's kind of a good time for Zucker to announce uh, that he's leaving. Because if you judge cable news purely by the numbers, um, particularly in the last four years, he did a great job. Because CNN for a long time was the respected straight news uh, network that really thrived when there was a war, when there was a huge crisis, when there was um, a story that everybody felt they had to turn the TV on. And CNN's numbers always went down when it was just sort of, you know, a typical week or month, business as usual. Uh, people turned to CNN when there was really big news. Uh, and that was a dilemma that many of the previous presidents were not able to resolve. Well, then along came Donald Trump. And what Zucker did is he turned CNN into a liberal anti-Trump network and decided that was going to be its business, that was going to be its brand. He was going to compete with MSNBC for that Trump-hating audience. And 
it paid off. Now, all the cable news networks had huge rating increases during the four years. They all went down uh, after Trump left office because obviously you had the drama of the post-election, stolen election allegations, period. Fox went down a lot. MSNBC went down a lot. CNN stayed up. And then last week, I think it was, CNN's, at least primetime's rating, went down 44%. Because now, you know, the thing that everybody tuned in for, well, what's the latest bad stuff about President Trump? Isn't there anymore. It'll come back next week during the Trump impeachment trial. And then I think we'll be back in the somewhat more sedate Biden era. Now, the irony of Zucker's very uh, personal feud with Donald Trump, because CNN, of all the news organizations that Trump hated, I think he hated CNN the most, most likely to call it fake news, you know, never put any uh, uh, administration officials on CNN, top officials at least, and certainly didn't give a CNN any interviews, uh, yes, during the campaign, but not after he became president. And the reason is that in more, perhaps more than any other human being on the planet, Jeff Zucker is responsible for the rise of Donald Trump because he was running NBC and he gave, um, you know, this colorful real estate tycoon casino owner guy a show called The Apprentice which was a hit show, particularly in its early years, and lasted for 14 seasons on NBC. And Donald Trump always was ticked off at NBC, NBC and its news division, for aggressively covering him as president, saying, I made the network so much money. This was not sources. He would say this repeatedly. He would say it on the air. He would say it at news conferences. Um, and he also therefore blamed Zucker for, in his view, betraying him by making CNN so anti-Trump. You know, not just in the primetime hours when everybody does opinion, but during the day, during the morning show, during lots of shows. Not everybody bought into this. I mean, you know, certain anchors there, like Wolf Blitzer, uh, uh, tried to maintain uh, at least a posture of neutrality. But you look at the White House coverage. Jim Acosta became famous on the Jeff Zucker because he would uh, he had a, an agenda, particularly on immigration, because he would interrupt Trump. He would debate Trump. Um, he had his White House credentials yanked, which was an overreach by the Trump White House, and they were eventually restored after a lawsuit. Uh, but, you know, remember that incident where he wouldn't give up the mic? He just kept asking Trump questions. And then CNN's newest White House correspondent, John Harwood, has called Trump a psychopath. He's called him a kook. He's made clear that he respects and admires Joe Biden and that he can't stand Donald Trump. And he wasn't a, a, a commentator. He wasn't an opinion host. He's a White House correspondent. These things uh, would have gotten you certainly demoted or taken off the air or a stern lecture, the old CNN, but not under Zucker's CNN. And so, you know, I guess um, if he stayed there for several more years, assuming he could have worked out a new contract, probably he was never going to have CNN in the ratings position that he has had, particularly in the last few months. People really turned to CNN during the, uh, the post-election battle and after the uh, Capitol riot on January 6th. Um, CNN probably has the most reporters of the three cable news networks. That's certainly true around the globe, because there's also CNN International, which makes uh, the company a lot of money. Uh, and CNN used to do more foreign news, more international news than any of the, than either of the other two rivals. Uh, but that really faded, you know, unless there was an absolute shooting war or something going on. That really faded because Trump, 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 Trump is what delivered the ratings. Now, look, Fox has plenty of opinionated people, too, who are obviously uh, a very strong supporters of Donald Trump on most issues. There were times when they broke with Trump on this or that issue. 
But those are people who are in opinion shows. And they don't all have the same view. There are opinion people at Fox who have shows who are not big fans of Donald Trump or are skeptical of Donald Trump or are sometimes critical of Donald Trump. But in the daytime, you don't have what the other two networks had, which is all anti-Trump almost all the time. There are exceptions. There are exceptions in, in the reporting ranks. There are exceptions in the host ranks. And I want to make that clear. So Jeff Zucker, moving on, and I guess uh, we will move on now to story number two. And that would be the Marjorie Taylor Greene melodrama. So last night, and this all broke late, the House Republicans got together at a private meeting and decided what to do about Marjorie Taylor Greene and Liz Cheney. I'll get to Liz in a moment. And Kevin McCarthy, the House Minority Leader, you know, had an opportunity to say that the, some of the things that Marjorie Taylor Greene has embraced, this is all before she came to Congress, which became part of the debate. Do you hold a duly elected lawmaker responsible for things in the past that he or she said on Facebook, on, you know, in, in videos and that sort of thing? Because the list is really long. I mean, just to just give you a couple of examples, and you know this if you've been listening to the podcast or you're not living in a cave, uh, you know, she questioned whether a plane hit the Pentagon on 9-11. Uh, she questioned whether the Clintons were involved in murders. She described the, some of the school shootings, including the Parkland school shootings, as false flag operations. In other words, they were just staged. Nobody was really killed. Uh, and, of course, she, her Facebook page, at least, liked uh, the idea of executing Nancy Pelosi, who was described as a traitor, killing FBI agents. It goes on and on and on, not to mention the Jewish lasers. Uh, which is from outer space, which is the craziest thing of all. So what Kevin McCarthy could have done is said, you know, this is unacceptable. So as we did Steve, with Steve King, we're taking you off your committee assignments, particularly the House Education Committee, given her stance on the school shootings. Now, the reason why that's so important, maybe to somebody who doesn't understand the Hill, you think, well, that's not much of a punishment. But the, the committees are where members of Congress do their work. And it's where you have the hearings. It's where you get to question witnesses. And maybe you become a subcommittee chairman or chairwoman, and you really have an impact. Without that, basically all you have is you can vote on the floor. I mean, you can obviously lobby other members on issues, but you're completely cut out of 90% of what Congress does. But Kevin McCarthy, he put out this kind of tortured statement, and she finally condemned what she said, passed comments from and endorsed by Marjorie Taylor Greene on school shootings, political violence, and anti-Semitic conspiracy theories do not represent the values or beliefs of the House Republican Conference. But nevertheless, he took no action. Now, behind the scenes, McCarthy was talking to Steny Hoyer, the number two House Democrat, to try to come up with a compromise. And that compromise that McCarthy offered was, okay, well, you know, she's on two committees. We'll, we'll agree to take her off one committee. So we'll show that we're punishing her, but we won't take her off both committees. And the Democrats said, no way, we're not interested in that. Um, and so, no action by the Republicans, but now today, later today, I'll report back to you on this tomorrow, the Democrats, Pelosi is scheduled to vote by the entire House on whether to strip Marjorie Taylor Greene, the newly elected Georgia Republican Congresswoman, of her committee assignments. And obviously, the Democrats vote along party lines. They have the majority and they can do this. It's maybe unprecedented Usually, it's your own party that takes action against a member who says or does outrageous things. And that will 
create a lot of sympathy for Marjorie Taylor Greene. I mean, she's raising money off of all this. She has not been apologetic. Now, there are reports in several news organizations that in this uh, session behind closed doors, that she said that she is no longer believes in QAnon conspiracy theories, that she recognizes that the school shootings took place, um, that she didn't believe in some of this stuff, um, and kind of sort of, you know, apologized, at least apologized for putting her Republican colleagues through this. But publicly, she's not apologized at all. In fact, she puts out these statements and tries to raise money off the, about being a, a target of the Democrats. I think in her Georgia district, if the Democrats do this, this will turn her into a martyr and probably only help her politically in Georgia. Um, that's the way I see it if the Democrats don't reach some kind of compromise. Now, Liz Cheney. Liz Cheney was the target of uh, Matt Gates and other Republicans who were absolutely outraged that she had the temerity to vote for Donald Trump's second impeachment along with nine other Republican members. And they said, how can she possibly represent our caucus when our caucus voted overwhelmingly not to impeach the former president? In fact, you know, what was it? About 136 House Republicans voted not to certify the Electoral College results that Joe Biden won the election. And that certainly, in, on some level, fueled the anger among Trump supporters that led to the violence on January 6th. I don't directly blame them. I don't think they wanted violence, but you certainly can't completely separate the two. So behind closed doors, secret ballot, Liz Cheney gets to hold on to her number three House leadership post by a vote of 145 to 61. So what you can say here is, if this vote had taken place publicly, if 145 House Republicans didn't have to go on, had to go on the record and say, we think she should remain as the number three uh, official in our caucus, I don't think that would have happened. Now, you can look at it another way. 61 House Republicans, even in secret, said, we want Liz Cheney out. Unacceptable. You can't vote against Donald Trump. We believe so deeply in Donald Trump. We don't think he should have been impeached. We're kicking you out of your job. Not out of your house seat in Wyoming, but out of your leadership post. I don't think she would have won by that margin. But she did it by not apologizing. She stuck to her gun. She says this was a matter of conscience. I did what I thought was right. I thought President Trump deserved to be impeached. Now, as far as what happens today with Green, uh, McCarthy's now calling it a partisan power grab. And he, he's warning, and you know this will have some resonance on the Hill, that there's going to be a precedent here. That if the Democrats are allowed to strip Marjorie Taylor Greene of her committee assignments, they could target other Republicans, and they could go after uh, other lawmakers for things they said before they were even in Congress. And of course, if Republicans get the House majority again, could they cite that president in going after uh, some Democrats that they don't like who've said outrageous things in the past. I think the, you could have an endless cycle of payback here. Now, publicly at least, you have more senators actually been announcing Marjorie Taylor Greene, starting with Mitch McConnell, calls her a cancer on the party. Florida Senator Rick Scott said she is not going to be the face of the party. And he was the governor uh, during the Parkland High School shooting, the massacre there in 2018. And he said that, that her effort to portray, portray the shooting as fake was disgusting. Uh, Republican Senator Tom Tillis, it's beyond reprehensible. 
for any elected official, especially a member of Congress, to parrot violent QAnon rhetoric and promote deranged conspiracies. It's not conservative. It's insane. Of course, they're in the Senate. They don't have to take this vote. Now, she did apologize, according to the New York Times and other papers, for espousing these conspiracy theories. Um, but she sidestepped the issue about the laser supposedly controlled by the Jewish banking family that was beamed down from space on California that caused the forest, forest fires. I mean, I hate to even give this stuff any oxygen at all. Um, so um, we'll see how this plays out. By the way, on this question of setting a precedent, here's the uh, Democratic chairman of the House Rules Committee, Jim McGovern. He says, a member of this House is calling for assassinations. That's the new precedent. If that's the standard that we move people from committees, I'm fine with that. Wow. Okay, moving on to, uh, before we leave this segment, Marco Rubio tried to blame this on the media. So Senator Rubio did a post saying, reporting that a politician believes in flirts with conspiracy theories is legit, but the attention they get should be proportional to their ability to influence actual public policy. So Rubio went on to say, don't make them famous, help them raise money or elevate conspiracy theories. Well, David Hogg, one of the survivors of the Parkland High School shooting, and of course Rubio's from Florida, responded online by saying, you enable them by not immediately denouncing them. Then you play the victim and say that you get generalized with white supremacists and QAnon people because you're Republican. You know why that happens? Because you don't denounce those things until weeks after, if ever. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzbeater coming your way in just a moment. All right, moving on to story number three, the big nearly $2 trillion coronavirus relief bill. So congressional Democrats yesterday uh, in the House, they voted to uh, have a budget blueprint that adopts the Biden plan, even though uh, Senate Republicans are pushing a compromise bill that's only about $600 billion dollars less than one-third the size of the Biden plan. So what this does, and the Senate also approved the budget blueprint on a party-line vote, it lays the groundwork uh, for the Democrats, if they so desire, and they're also obviously using this for leverage, to completely pass, to, to do without a single Republican vote through a process called budget reconciliation to pass this nearly $2 trillion bill, to go big, as Biden says. Um, and I think a couple of things are going on here. One is, you know, the idea that Republicans are saying, oh, this is not a unity, what is Biden doing? Look, when Republicans uh, controlled both houses and Donald Trump was president, uh, they used the same maneuver, budget reconciliation, to pass the Trump tax cuts. Everybody does it when they can. I'm not a huge fan of it. I wish it was more bipartisan, but that's not the world we live in anymore. So for Mitch McConnell to suddenly say, oh, this is really partisan, he did the exact same thing. And not to mention, you know, what he did with Merrick Garland. Secondly, though, um, Joe Biden was vice president in 2009. In 2009, Barack Obama, in retrospect, this is viewed as a mistake by Biden and many Democrats. He delayed trying to push through his stimulus bill for months and months and months, trying to get Republicans to go along so he could say it was bipartisan. And he, he couldn't. He couldn't do it. Obama hardly got any Republicans at all. Maybe it was a handful, maybe one or two. I don't remember the exact figure. And so all that time was viewed as wasted. Plus, Obama uh, at the time, remember, this was on the heels of the huge financial crisis, the failure of some Wall Street banks. It was a pretty big deal. The economy was in deep doo-doo. And um, 
Obama proposed at that time an $800 billion stimulus bill. A lot of Democrats, including Biden, I think, wanted to go bigger, but they thought if they kept the number down, they could get Republicans to sign on. I think that was a formative experience for Joe Biden. I think he's going to have no hesitation. And he's saying privately to House and Senate Democrats uh, that while he's happy to negotiate some things, he's not, he doesn't want to bring the bill down very much from the price tag. Uh, he'd be willing to target more of it. Uh, he, he targets it to p- individuals making $75,000 or less. He'd be willing to go lower. The Republicans are saying $50,000. he would be willing to you know, make certain other adjustments. But basically, he doesn't want to really scale it back significantly. We need to act fast, Biden told House Democrats on a conference call. It's about who the hell we are as a country. And by the way, this is a pretty popular bill. There's a new Quinnipiac poll says... 68% of Americans support the $1.9 trillion package. Only 24% of those uh, surveyed oppose the measure. That's pretty good in today's polarized society. Now, if you break it down by party, according to the Q poll, Democrats support it 97%. Okay. Independence is the key swing group. 68% approval of the Biden big coronavirus relief package. And Republicans are opposed... 47% to 37%, 16% of no opinion. Well, looked at another way, more than one-third of Republicans say, yes, I support Joe Biden's you know, hugely expensive, massive coronavirus relief package because they're hurting. Their economies are hurting. They're worried about their jobs or they're unemployed or they're worried about getting the vaccines. And I think, and so on the particular question of the $1,400 direct payments, which brings it up to a total of 2000 after the money approved under Trump, of Americans support stimulus checks of that size. 18% opposed them. You know who else supported it? Donald Trump. He wanted $2,000 stimulus checks. Unfortunately for him, he waited until both houses had acted. At that point, he wasn't able to get it reversed. Uh, Axios said, look, power matters. Biden holds all the power. Get used to it. Democrats are gleeful as they watch the media fixate on family feuds inside the GOP while Biden pushes out executive orders and pushes through this bill on his own terms. Um, and it seems to me that, you know, Biden has the power to push this through. And he's not going to be dissuaded because a year from now, you know, the average American going to care what budget route he went in order to uh, get this bill through. No, they'll care about the results. They'll care about whether the virus is under control. They'll care about how the economy is doing. Is it bouncing back? They'll care about uh, whether the vaccine program proved to be a success. How many months did it take to immunize a majority of Americans, or at least those who are willing to get these shots. If the answer to all those questions is a failing grade, then the Biden presidency, I don't think, will ever recover. It's not going to be crippled, particularly with these poll numbers on the bill, um, by a sort of a beltway fight about process that most people don't even understand. Meanwhile, um, it's nice that the number of coronavirus cases is going down. But yesterday's numbers give me some pause about that. 118,000 new cases, um, which is far lower than the 200,000, 250,000 cases. But the death toll yesterday, 3,843 Americans died of COVID-19. That's back up to the level. It had come way down. Maybe it's a one-day aberration. The level of about 4,000 deaths a day that was happening for several weeks. So Anthony Fauci is now on TV every day because he's been liberated as uh, President Biden's chief medical advisor. Um, He said on the Today Show that uh, he's worried about big Super Bowl parties. Just lay low and cool it because 
partying with people you don't know could expose him to the virus. Now, he was right about Thanksgiving. That led to a surge. He was right about Christmas. That led to a surge. I think Super Bowl, you don't tend to travel as much. Maybe it's more family things, but certainly a lot of people go to bars or, or do this with friends. I mean, look, Fauci's role is to be Dr. No. Don't have a good time. Don't hang out with other people. And look, he's doing it for a good cause. A lot of people don't listen to him. They're going to do it anyway. Uh, I've read, though, that one of the reasons that the number of new cases is down is that fewer people are getting tests, which may mean that it's not as encouraging a figure as it might have seemed. Uh, because with the news about the vaccines, maybe people feel like they don't need to get tested. They'll just wait. They'll try to get the vaccine. I guess about 27 million Americans have gotten the vaccine so far. That's good, but it's not nearly enough. Uh, and so many people still can't get it. All right, story number four. Country singer Morgan Wallen has issued an apology after an awful video surfaced showing him using the N-word. He put out a statement, which was given to Fox News. The country music star said, I'm embarrassed and sorry. I use an unacceptable and inappropriate racial slur that I wish I could take back. There are no excuses to use this type of language ever. I want to sincerely apologize for using the word. I promise to do better. This was reported by TMZ. TMZ actually got a video of uh, Wallen doing this. Um, and the, he was walking up to his driveway with a bunch of friends, and they were using the N-words and other profanities. I don't care about the profanities. Why? Because uh, he, he was out in Nashville partying, came home around midnight, and a neighbor woke up and then caught this on camera. Uh, if they'd been a little quieter, he might have got, gotten away with it. Now, Juan is the same guy who, uh, I guess it was last fall, he was supposed to be on Saturday Night Live. And um, he was canceled by SNL when the video surfaced of him at a crowded party without a mask during the, the pandemic. And he accepted that as tough but necessary. Like he may have gotten rescheduled, I don't remember. So this is a guy who... Uh, Let's it all hang out, I guess. And uh, he's paid the price now in two different instances. Because it's an embarrassing episode. No one should ever, 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 ever use that word or any other racial slur. And, you know, when it's on video, what are you going to say? You have to apologize because you got caught. Finally, story number five. Politico has a piece on sort of like how Joe Biden spends his days. And I'm kind of a sucker for these pieces because I think it's kind of interesting. The most interesting aspect of Barack Obama's uh, autobiography is that he writes it... A, from a perspective of what's it like to be president. There's just a lot of little touches about how he found time to hang out with his daughters and what he did in his spare time and um, what rooms he used. And so here's Politico, obvious cooperation from the Biden White House, saying Biden walks around the White House a lot. He's popped into the press offices. He walks to the East Wing to visit the military office. Uh, on the day that uh, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken was confirmed, he went by the office of Blinken's wife. I didn't even know this. She's the White House Cabinet Secretary. Her name is Evan Ryan to congratulate the family. Uh, because he can't travel much because of the COVID-19, uh, he's sort of compensating by walking around the White House. Obama, you know, wasn't a big schmoozer. Uh, Biden, as Politico notes, is much more like his predecessor. Trump always was like talking to people and he was always like calling people late at night, business guys he knew and so, and so forth. And then he'd tweet about it or he'd come back and change a policy the next day. But Politico says, well, of course, it has to be, Biden has to be compared favorably to Trump. Politico said, well, you know, Biden doesn't have the kind of haphazard exchanges that characterize Trump's four years. His West Wing is already far more disciplined than Trump's ever was, especially when it comes to access to the president. And that's always an interesting thing. Who gets to go to the Oval Office? 
while Trump would call friends and allies seemingly at random. Like, so what? He's the president. He can talk to whoever he wants. Uh, Politico says Biden has a list of phone calls scheduled for him. While Trump didn't mind aides and outside allies wandering into the Oval Office. I remember this was a big problem for uh, Reince Priebus when he was the first chief of staff. He couldn't even control who went in there uh, because then people would go in and get things reversed that Priebus thought were under control. Uh, With Biden, there are gatekeepers who control access to the room. Now, there are a couple of exceptions to that. Um, Some of his political aides, like Steve Reschetti and Mike Donilon, get to walk in when they want. Obviously, he's not in the middle of a meeting. Uh, Biden also wants uh, memos. And then he asks his aides, well, what would be the impact in this part of the country or in that part of the country or people who don't make that much money? So he likes getting memos, which Trump famously didn't ever want anything more than a page. But he has a sort of a real politic approach in which he wonders not just about, you know, will this fly in Congress or how will this play in the media? What will be the real world impact on people? And then when he gets a memo, he will tick off a list of uh, people he wants to talk about uh, about this issue. It could be a city council member of Wisconsin or a world leader in Europe. And then he'll ask his staff, well, suggest a couple other people for me to talk to who I don't know. Look, Joe Biden is a a hands-on, backstopping politician. And despite the curtailment of COVID, he wants to talk to people. That's how he operates. That's how he's always operated. He had had a reputation as being an incredible gas bag in the Senate for 36 years because he loved to talk. But, you know, there is a part of politics that works that way. You make deals with people you like and you get to know people even in the opposition and you get to like them. It's easier to do business than when you never see anybody, never talk to anybody, you remain closeted. And the presidency is a bubble. And it's one of the things Obama also talks about in this book. How do you break out of the bubble? He used to do it by, you know, going to restaurants. Uh, Trump, when Trump wanted to eat out, he'd go to his hotel down Pennsylvania Avenue. All right. Hope you'll subscribe to our podcast here. Apple iTunes is a good place to do it or on your Amazon device. Thanks for listening. We'll see you all tomorrow with more BuzzFeed. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.